0: So today we got lots of questions and uh, we thought we'd alternate and Alexis gets to start.
1: (laughs) Okay, if Buddhist understandings, dharma, are the natural result of right living? Can you, hear? you can. OK. And meditation, uh, so if Buddhist understandings, Dharma, are the natural result of right living and meditation, why do others who meditate, other religious or non-secular, uh, not come to the same Buddhist insights? Is it different outcome, cause and effect? Okay. Um, so I don't know that many other religions. I was uh, brought up in a non-secular or non-secular. Is that that's secular? Secu- secular, yeah, secular. <laughs> that, that particular thing always confuses me. Not secular household. Um, so, but the way I sort of I like the way the Dharma understands the nature of the mind, which is that this is this nature, this is natural faculties. And I think in some ways, at least for me, and I think it's true for a lot of people when they come to the Dharma, they recognize a lot of the qualities of mind that are pointed to as we are, you know, that we already had those qualities. For example, you know, that there's a lot of mixture of wholesome qualities in the mind. Um, that were already there. And so there's something that's very natural about that. And I think that's true for human beings. And I think a lot of spiritual traditions aim to, in some ways, enhance the goodness that is part of the human nature um, and recognizes that potential. I think what is unique, or at least I find um, what Dharma points to, and it, you can see it in the, in the Noble Eightfold Path, that in the very first step, is right view, and that it points to the way things are. And in doing that, it is an attempt to really move towards reality. And that's what the teachings offer. And I think in Tibetan Buddhism, I think there's one school that describes the the path all along the way as increasingly refining or clarifying the view Right? So that in the beginning, we don't really know a lot of information. And as we practice, we hear more, we get more understanding, the wisdom's growing. And the view of which we understand the mind and body process gets clarified. We get clear about what it is, what it means to practice, what it means to walk the path. We get more skilled. And so, I just say you know one one thing that really stands out as far as Buddha Dharma is talks it talks really about the view you know about the way things are without um, leading with a lot of uh, emphasis on needing to believe that there's a there's a, an emphasis on come and see the Buddha said, hey, pasiko come come and see for yourself and see if this is true and That emphasis was very appealing to me. Where I I wasn't really seeking to to join anything. I was wanting to to learn about the nature of the mind, and so yeah. I just uh, see what else you have to offer.
0: I guess the I'm in complete agreement around the view. You know, this is the view, the perspective that we bring to our practice it's it isn't actually just about right living and meditation every i mean i think as alexa says every religion really emphasizes the wholesome the beautiful um non-harming um compassion um there's one there's one teaching in the i think it's in the anguttara nikaya where um one of the it's, I love this because it 's a householder that is talking to a bunch of other ascetics, and this householder in an uh, they these other ascetics come to him and say, "What views do you hold and uh, or no he, he says, "What views does the Buddha hold?" and he says, "Well, you know i can't tell you what views the Buddha holds well, how about the uh, the other monastics, the other monks of the buddha i don 't know what they, views they hold either." And they're kind of thinking, well, this guy doesn't know anything. And then they, and then they say, well, what views do you hold? And he says, well, I can tell you that, but first you tell me what your views are. And they each express their views, which were along the lines of, oh, every the world is infinite, the world is finite, um, um, all these various kinds of perspectives that religious teachings were offering at the time. And they all ended their little thing with like, and this this alone is true. Everything else is false. And the uh, Ananda Pindaka followed that by saying, "Well, here's here's the view I hold. It is that um, I can't remember exactly the word, but along the lines of um, experience arising um, when held to is stress." the letting go of that is the end of suffering. That's the sort of view I hold. And uh, he had originally said to each of them, you know, you're holding to your views and that's causing you suffering. Um, and, uh, and so they tried that same argument on him. They said, so you're holding to that view, that's causing you suffering. And he said, when I see the arising of you, I see it as impermanent and constant <laughs> and it releases this kind of perspective, basically a view that helps one overcome attachment to views, is not a perspective that one comes upon with ease. And the, the, the view that the Buddha offers in the Eightfold Path, what's the cause of suffering, the, the craving that's the cause of suffering? This is not a perspective that um, the, the, the human mind... We' naturally gravitate to it takes an unusual person like the Buddha to point it out, and then we can see it so that that um, because the Buddha got that 's what I said the, the wheel of the Dharma is set in motion um, that it took somebody with the mind of the, uh, the, uh, an unusual mind to be able to uncover, discover that truth to teach the rest of us, and it 's that view combined with meditation, combined with awareness, that allows us to whew, become free. Want to add anything more? <laughs> uh, sometimes thoughts and feelings of appreciation for the Buddha arise. In this practice, I just know them as mental process and do not intentionally extend them. Is this correct practice? Um, when any wholesome quality arises, the uh, encouragement in this practice is really to know it, to really uh, be aware of it. Metta arises. Appreciation for the Buddha um uh, generosity, any wholesome quality. Um, we're talking about getting familiar with mindfulness. So any wholesome quality arising, awareness um, of it. And, uh, you know, intentionally, you know, we intentionally explore cultivating awareness, Um But I would say in general, we, the, the extending of these wholesome qualities happens naturally with the awareness of them. That's a function of awareness and wisdom. When awareness and wisdom know wholesome qualities, the wholesome qualities uh, grow. They become more uh, predominant in our minds. And so it's a natural way of extending them as opposed to a, maybe an intentionality to try to extend them. And I'm not, I, you know, it's certainly not a bad practice. I'm not saying it's it's not a, uh, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be a good thing to do at times. And, you know, at times we've even talked about when when there are um, times of struggle, you know, when we feel like we're going to down the rabbit hole of... Um, some challenging state and not able to be aware of it, we use our tools, you know. And if appreciation of the Buddha is a tool that resonates or compassion practice is a tool that resonates or uh, being with the breath is a tool that helps you stay here and not go down that rabbit hole, by all means, cultivate it. Work with it to support the, the balance of mind. Anything you want to add to that?
1: yeah um when i had i i think when i was with you i i i did a lot of experimenting you know of just even though you know i was with someone that uh i trusted uh everything that he was offering he was just uh, such a skilled teacher he was also encouraging me to to explore and to see what you know what works to know my own mind and know why am i doing something is it working I mean, why is that work and it's so is so non-formulaic and i think as Andre saying it's like if there are times when reflecting on on in the image or the the idea of the buddha is uplifting and you need that i would say that's wonderful and and include the sense of knowing that's what, that's what the mind is doing. That's what it's inclined to do. So you're just kind of always including that aspect of learning about what is motivating the practice in this moment. Why am I choosing to do that? So that there's never that kind of moving into um, a habit response of, well, this comes up. Now I'm just going to go ahead and, and do this process. And we really just go unconscious in that moment. And I find that that just kind of covers over the moment rather than having it be something that clarifies in that moment why am I doing that. You know, and not and the doing that is never like wrong. It's just adding that extra piece in means it's not becoming a habit that and and it's not an escape from something. It may be a skillful moving away from something that's agitating the mind. Okay, so now I'm knowing I'm not gonna focus on that object. Let me take something that stabilizes the mind. And there was um it's Shui Umen, um those who have been there. The, on the, there's two floors, meditation, in the meditation hall, and women and men. And, and so on the, the men's floor, there's this uh, Buddha um, plaster, giant Buddha plaster of light. And then a, what's it called, diorama? One of those painted scenes behind it. And this is oval, see? It's the cheesiest looking thing <laughs> that you can imagine. Which is funny because Shriyomin, when he when he was still living, he didn't want to have any rupas, any he didn't want to have any kind of you know things at all to kind of mix into the practice. He wanted it to be very pure, very simple. So, anyways, Shri Min, Sidol passes away. They make a big bronze statue of him, and like this big, <laughs> <laughs> the way these things transpire. So, anyways, this thing was was in the on the floor, and there'd be times when my mind was reeling, you know, from just all the stuff that was getting, you know, it's like lifting up the carpet after all the years of being alive. It's like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. And it was coming out. And so I often spend a lot of time with my eyes open, just soaking in this pure, you know, it was, it was you know, it's what it was. But for me, it was like the image that really helped just allow my mind to be in that peaceful state that helped to really, you know, be that, in that relaxed, open, and then when I closed my eyes, it was just uh, my mind was so agitated. I would just sit there and just kind of let the mind resonate on that, knowing that that's what I was doing. But it was, you know, it was skillful means at that moment. And I just want to add, is coming to my mind that oftentimes um, when we use the language of dukkha. This is sort of in contrast to taking something wholesome like that and reflecting on the wholesome. We can go around saying, oh, oh this is all dukkha. You know, this is dukkha, dukkha. And Uttaraniya would remind people that, um, well, it's, the, it's true. There's a way of saying things aren't dukkha and that's their characteristics. It's, it's not uh, inherently going to, you know, satisfying. But to call things dukkha, assuming that there's understanding there, is just, is labeling things that can be um, almost depressing. It's like we view everything as, oh, it's dukkha, and, and sort of telling oneself, oh, life is just all, un- it's all suffering. And, and he was just pointing out that that's, that's not really the meaning of dukkha. And he really encourages also people to recognize the wholesome states of mind if the mind is always un- inclining towards things that are, that are suffering, we can get into that mood of, well, nothing, you know, everything's life-suffering and what's the point? And that's not the inside of dukkha. You know, the inside of dukkha is something very different. And so I just wanted to say that we want to keep the mind balanced, recognizing the wholesome, so when the mind is aware, you know, you're aware of feeling uplifted by the Buddha, to you know, recognize oh, that's a wholesome state of mind. And not only reflect on everything's defilements and it's all suffering and life is miserable, which can get depressing. So My turn. (laughs) So, Andrea, I think earlier you described awareness as like a mirror, always there reflecting whatever is going on. It's helpful to me to think of awareness like this because then I think... Of just opening up to what's there, it seems to me it's attention that comes and goes, but awareness is always there, just sometimes obscured. But I think this is the opposite of what you are describing now. I.e., attention is constant, awareness comes and goes. Okay, you caused the trouble. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I was going to start the ones that Andrea was going to take first. So um, awareness feels like it's always there. feels like attention comes and goes. And um, yeah, this is, this comes down to what words are we using again? So attention is that which knows experience. And so any, any moment of experience that we're having, we would say attention is that's the function of attention. Okay, so then mindfulness or awareness is knowing that that is happening. Now, some schools in Buddhism will say that awareness is always there. We don't recognize it. And that gets more complicated. Is awareness always there? It's like saying, you know, you look in the mirror and every time I look in the mirror, there I am. And I I go back and I look in the mirror again. You know, am I always in the mirror? It's like, well, when you're when the conditions are there, it feels like you're always in the mirror, but, you know. And I'd say, just from the experiential side of things, and that's, you know, whether or not which theory aligns, I think that sometimes, you know, it's a lot of, people get into a lot of controversy as well, what is the right way? The way I sort of resolve these things, A, they're all meant to be skillful means. So if, the teaching of a particular way of looking at something is skillful in terms of understanding something we make use of that if it doesn't quite resonate just set it aside and you know for me as i look at attention and awareness i can recognize you know when i before i started practicing and as a child i was having experiences right there is clearly a, a being that was having a lot of experiences and so I could say, yeah, I guess my mind was attending to those experiences. And I wasn't always aware in the moment of having them that I was having those experiences. Now that I've been cultivating awareness, increasingly, there's a knowing as as the experiences are happening, where is the mind attending? And that it's attending there and it knows what's happening. And so, this, you know, that, that there's... These different qualities. And, and in this way of talking, attention is that which is where, wherever the mind is having the experience in that moment, whether or not we're aware in that moment that we're having the experience. So we may be hearing something, we're hearing sounds. So the mind is having attention there, it's attending. And as soon as I remind you that hearing is happening, right, that you're hearing, so even though the function of hearing was happening and the mind was attending that because you're understanding the words, if you were paying attention, or if the mind was attending there, then the awareness now knows hearing is happening. If that makes sense. And I'll pass it on time to you. <laughs>
0: yeah, it really is the language uh, we're using. And the, o- the only other piece I'll add to what Alexis said is that there's another... I mean, factor of mind, another, there's several that are said to happen in every moment. Um, and consciousness is one of those, the bare knowing quality. And sometimes when people say awareness, that's kind of what they're talking about too. And that seems like what the flavor of what this question is pointing to. When I, and it's like, there is something that's always knowing. There is a, there is a knowing that's always happening. And, and that knowing always has that factor of attention. Um, so that uh, but mindfulness or what we're calling awareness here comes and goes so we could take the awareness out of the picture just let let's let's let that word sit to the side and um, knowing happens all the time so there is that kind of Always knowing something, you know, that the form of knowing happens all the time. At, it, that knowing always has something it's attending to. And then sometimes mindfulness is aware of that. Oh, my turn. <laughs> Consciousness. You're off. Consciousness and consciousness consciousness has qualities that arise with it all the time. Intention, attention, perception, things like that. That's like this the state of mind is comes together with that. And so there's always the knowing and that knowing always knows something. So consciousness and attention are separate things. Yeah. Um, When aware (laughs) becomes more like a mantra than a mindfulness prompt, then keep on keeping on be invented and use new prompts but without being too busy about it when you notice the mind is doing that aware 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 that's what the mind is doing you you might have gotten lost kind of it's it, it's kind of a mantra it's automatic it's there may not be mindfulness there you become aware you notice this is what the mind is doing. So, in that moment, so uh, when aware becomes more like a mantra than a mindfulness prompt, the fact that you've noticed that, notice that that is what the mind was doing. It was uh, making something like rote. And now that you're aware again, um, You might try experimenting with some other language, um, keeping it fresh, um, find the language that resonates for you, um, you know, some of you have pointed out, you know, this, this question doesn't work to me, for me, but this one does, um. So you know what what is it that does keep it fresh, and that the other place this this may be um, one of those places. I was talking last night about places we tend to lose awareness. Um, if you're if you're using aware frequently, you know it might be like you're aware 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 aware. It's like you're not really giving yourself a chance to land there and know what awareness is. Um, So you might also uh, slow it down and uh, let yourself really um, resonate with that prompt. Do you have anything more to say?
1: Remembering, there's a um, maybe it's in the Defamans book, but th- uh, this this particular drawing, there's a, a drawing in Utejaniya's office um, by the same artist, and it's a drawing of, of a building, and it says meditation hall on it, and yogis are walking from one side, walking into the building, and they're walking into the the meditation hall, and they come out as these robots and <laughs> and it says something to the effect of you know don't make you know practice uh or don't become robotic or you know don't make practice a habit in that way you know a technique habit and you know i think what what that is sort of pointing to is there's no final solution like you just get your your you know do this and then we get to just do this over and over and over again there's something that's so alive about the dhamma that you know we don't know what we're going to come up against in the next moment and there's times when we do have to say well as the mind aware is the mind aware and then that works or or the or you just notice there's an there's an awareness that's that's now more sustaining and that would not be the right question to be asking because the mind already has that momentum. But then it's it's feeling a contraction. And so then you say, oh, what's that contraction? And that's, that's, look at that, that's maybe some sense of self that's getting getting hooked there. Oh, what's that like? And being with that, you know, can I be with that? And so there's all kinds of ways in which the moment that we're living speaks, speaks to us. It's like letting the Dhamma Kind of move through you so that there's a there's this aliveness in the relationship to what's happening, you know, and there's some things that do work for long periods of time but but it is really to be conscious that it's working or why it's working, and that it is in fact doing something you know it's not sort of a magic pill, like take five of these awareness questions a day and you need like that's from Monday, it's like those pill boxes and put the right questions you know in each of the day and then you pull out okay these are the questions i'm asking today it'd be nice to just have that all laid out for us but you know the dhamma is kind of going to move at its own maze and we keep showing up for it um yeah so just that i'd say be aware of the habit making the falling into the groove which you know is our mind's tendency to do is There's something that we sort of like, and before we know it, we're just now habitually in that, and really the factors, the qualities of the mind have have weakened a little bit. So we're really learning how to check on the mind. Is it actually, when that, some people have asked that about that phrase in the book, um, is the mind superficially aware or really aware? And that's sort of the discovery and understanding of what does it mean we're not superficially aware. Well, superficially aware might mean when i get on automatic pilot a little bit and i'm just asking that question because that's what now I'm, my practice looks like is asking this question and then we check and we recognize oh yeah i'm not really mindful of asking that question and again the awareness feels further established right so just like that just you know keeping it as as intimate and genuine as possible any of these any of these offerings they're meant to really be taken in and known how they're being used in, in, in the practice. And it's my turn. Okay. Uh, when I deliberately walk at an exercise pace, which my body, mind seem to need over time, There is definitely the feeling of an agenda when I look at what's the attitude, plus less sustained mindfulness. My inclination is to do it anyway, just for that portion of the day, and learn from it. I have learned over time that this mind and body feel worse, i.e. mood, energy, etc., when I don't exercise somewhat aerobically. Any comment? So it sounds like that's a wonderful attitude to have around that whole process of um, exploring the terrain. You know, so there's something that feels good for my body. Noticing, oh, the mindfulness, the quality of the mindfulness gets weak when I do that. Okay, so when is when is it getting weak? See if you can catch the point of when it gets weak. And this is a great example of... of When we have the view, and it sounds like the view is sinking in there a bit, of knowing that it's not necessarily the object itself that's causing the loss of the awareness, that one can actually maintain awareness. But in practicing it, right, as we practice things that we're not accustomed to maintaining awareness in, we get more familiar with that territory. And I was having a conversation with, with, uh, one yogi about uh, having a conversation or why, why is it so hard to have a conversation with and be aware? Why is that, why is that so difficult? And we're talking about how in a way, you know, having conversations and speaking, there's this sort of dance step that feels familiar and bringing in awareness feels a little bit different, almost like, can I do this? Can I be aware And talk. Am I doing something that's sort of odd and unusual here? Or is that allowed? And I think sometimes, you know, bringing in awareness into different places of our life just feels like it's new territory. And as we do it, there's a sense of not only the confidence that it can be done, but we really see the benefit of bringing in our practice into all the places where it tends to just, you know, the practice falls off. And my encouragement is to really explore, does it ever, is it ever better to not be aware in a moment? (laughs) You know, the defilements prefer it. You know, the defilements will say, not here. Like, I I want to run the show right now. But in fact, you know, as far as the way it feels, there's a sense of, yeah, yeah, this is better to be aware, to have the right view and to have the mind more relaxed. So with walking... You know, and walking quickly, just, just noticing that. What's the difference between walking quickly with a sense of rushing and walking quickly with the body just moving fast? Is that a possible exploration? Um, and just one one more thing. Joseph Goldstein often talk about Menindraji, um, one of his teachers from India. He said he was a fast, I think, talker and a very fast walker but he never saw him rush. He would see him move very quickly, but there was never a sense of him rushing. And it's a great place to explore what is that like when something has to be done quickly to do it quickly. And that feeling of when the rushed feeling is there and those moments when the rushed feeling is not. And they're not, they don't always need to come together. We're used to them coming together, but they don't, they're not, Bound together, you know they're not uh, married forever. They can be teased apart, and and we can see them as separate. The sense of rushing and and uh, kind of leaning forward into it versus just being with it and doing it at the speed that that is required. Pass it on to you. Nothing, Dad. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> If it's causes and conditions that determine when awareness is present, what are those causes and conditions and can we influence those? It is causes and conditions that determine when awareness is present. And the mind-body process... The, the conditions of the mind-body process can influence those. One of the conditions of the mind-body process is arising of a sense of agency, of choice, and uh, when that choice arises, when that uh, choice choice is a possibility, there there is that. Uh, that possibility of one versus another thing. And that choice is also conditioned. It will be conditioned either by defilement or by wisdom, by wholesome or unwholesome. So, in general, the conditions that influence and uh, support awareness, hearing the Dhamma, hearing hearing the teachings will, is a condition that supports the practice. That's the first condition we need. <laughs> the very first condition we need is the, the hearing the Dhamma. And um, once the Dhamma has been heard by this mind-body process, there, for us at least, for all of us in this room, there has been, uh, that has landed and choices have been made to explore what was taught. So cultivate mindfulness. (laughs) So uh, this is an interesting piece, and I did talk about this last night, but I'll kind of highlight it. The other key condition it is said that supports the arising of mindfulness the proximate cause for the arising of mindfulness is mindfulness and fortunately for us that unprompted mindfulness arises a lot and when we start to uh Kind of when when the the hearing the Dhamma starts to hook into that uh, recognition of awareness is here, then that um, condition of awareness being present can there can be the prompting of mindfulness. Awareness is here. Can I be aware? Can I be aware? Can I be aware? So that that is one of the key. Uh, conditions that supports mindfulness. Um, And so it really is this kind of, you know, wisdom. First, it's the wisdom of hearing the Dhamma, the mindfulness, so the, the awareness, and the energy to keep it going. I don't think it's an accident that these are Sayadaw's three yogi jobs: cultivate right view, recognize, be aware, and continue to be aware. Practice that continuity. Those are the key conditions, I think, for for um, influencing the growth, the the arising of mindfulness as I said yesterday, you know the more we notice awareness, the more we take in and are aware that we are aware. it creates the conditions for more of that to happen. and we there can't there is that doing, there is a little bit of choice that um, can support that, and that choice is influenced by the fact that we have heard the Dhamma. So it's not random, you know, we're, we've are we heard the Dhamma and that has entered into our system and that contributes to the choices. There's some wisdom there, it contributes to the choices. You want to say something?
1: I was getting an image uh, as Andre was talking of these little streams, you know, in in the the woods, tiny little trickles, and I think in some ways our you know practice starts out that way with these little bits here and there, just adding, and those little streams join other little little bits here and there, and and they start to build. And there's a sense of the momentum of the dharma starting to move through the life. And, um, you know, i I just noticing in my own life and practice how it hasn't been all that long, about, you know, 15 years now or so, really immersed in the dharma. And it just increasingly becomes this um, natural force uh, or, or tendency of the mind. And it's like imagining those... The, you know, there's little little streams joining up with, with more and more and become slightly bigger and bigger and important and it becomes a river. And this momentum of the Dhamma really starts, you know, when they say the Dhamma, if we take care of the Dhamma, the Dhamma will take care of you. And after a while, I think the um, the mindfulness sp- spills over onto <laughs> the <laughs> and it's the nature of things to spill. <laughs> Where is it? Let's
0: just put the. Loop Thanks, Tom. We just need to make sure it doesn't go down.
1: Yeah. Um, so water is such a wonderful analogy. <laughs> <laughs> so things start <laughs> flowing, and I just think having the confidence that these that this happens, um, and we're putting in the conditions necessary for things to flow, right? So. I think you had the next question, actually. You're going to do two in a row. No, no, next just... But, oh, you want me to do two? Remember there was... Yeah. This one follows from that one, though, I think. Okay. I think. Thank you. Okay. I can do it.
0: So this does kind of follow on from this last one uh, in some ways. How is wholesome karma, which is wholesome choice, essentially did that? that um, the Buddha at one point said that karma is volition the, when, it it is this this point, this choice point, it is the point when the mind chooses to act, when the mind chooses to take action. It's not the action itself that is the determinant of the the unfolding flow of, whether we move towards suffering or happiness but rather the intention that goes with that choice so and this is where we're looking at the uh, the the attitude what what are the motivations with with which we are practicing what 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 is that um essentially when there's the The basic understanding around karma is when there's greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind when we're taking action, that will head us in the direction of dukkha, of struggle, of suffering. When there is um, wholesome karma, well, there's there's non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion in the mind, it, it heads us towards, um, heads us in the direction of Um, happiness and um, that teaching on karma so uh, uh, um, I'll just say a little bit more that teaching on karma um, in in, and of itself uh, we see that you know, acting out on the defilements leads us towards, um, you know, struggle, suffering. And then, you know, we can cultivate wholesome qualities like metta, um, compassion, um, joy, happiness. Um, and those, those w- you know, we can become happier and happier in our lives, So that's wholesome karma. It it heads us in a wholesome direction. Now the rest of the question, um, how is wholesome karma distinguished from the karma that leads to the end of karma? That is, how can each be recognized in the mind? Um, so the karma that leads to the end of karma, the karma that leads to the end of karma, um, is the karma the that leads us to the ending of uh, suffering entirely. This is a kind of a... Hmm. Why wouldn't following wholesome karma lead us to the ending of suffering entirely? Because there can be a subtle... um, creation or movement towards the wholesome. So there's a simile, the simile, a simile the mm, the Buddha used um, a simile of the raft and The qualities of, you know, wholesome qualities, cultivating wholesome qualities in the mind supports us to let go of unwholesome qualities. And so it's like, it's it's a step. It's a step in the direction. So cultivating wholesome karma helps us to let go of unwholesome karma. You know, the ways that we, you know, we see our mind kind of headed towards... Um, headed towards its habits you know I, at one point I think I, I don't remember if I mentioned it on this retreat but at one point I was observing anger in the mind and and spent had been, spent quite a bit of time observing anger and at one point watched the, the mind create a thought and then like have this like urge to jump on that thought and think more thoughts in order to get angry So you know, there's like a pull sometimes. Our habits, like like uh, Alexis was just saying, you know, the defilements want that uh, non mindfulness. They want to spur up the um those states. So the you know that that um it was shocking to me when I saw that some part of my mind wanted to get angry. Fortunately, in that moment, the mind saw that and you know let go of that so the uh the work towards cultivating the wholesome qualities helps us learn how to let go of the unwholesome so this is the raft this is the raft it's helping us that the, the buddha used the analogy of crossing a, st- a flood on this raft and um um he in this in this uh, analogy equated the raft with the eightfold path and you know it's like that the the eightfold path can help us to cross the flood of greed aversion and delusion can cross the flood of the unwholesome states so we use that raft we use the wholesome qualities of mind and heart to cross the flood and then the analogy goes on and says to, he said to his monks, and so what do you think after you've crossed the flood? Is it useful to uh, pick up that raft saying, well, wow, this raft has been extremely useful for me. I think I'll carry it around on my head and walk around on dry land. And it's like, well, no, that's not very useful. The purpose of that raft was to cross the flood. Once I get to the other side, there's no need for holding on to it, um, so the and and the next thing in the in the sutta, I believe that he says is, and so we need to let go of wholesome states. How much more so, let go of unwholesome. So the. I think this points back in a way to that uh, view that I talked about earlier that um, you know, the karma that leads to the end of karma holds this view that allows it to transcend itself. So the Eightfold Path actually holds a perspective that allows us to um, let go of needing to hold on to it that we see essentially that holding on to it itself is clinging is dukkha so the the clinging the, the the clinging to wholesome states the buddha pointed to as that's also that's that's not going to lead you to the full liberation and you know in terms of distinguishing them I think it really, it really is the view that, uh, the view of everything, everything is an arising in the mind, that arising in the mind when clung to is suffering, so that even when, you know, factors, beautiful factors arise in the mind, there is the understanding, even clinging to this is suffering. That's the karma that leads to the end of karma. So, a little further, uh, earlier in the path, those wholesome states, cultivating those wholesome states, there may be clinging to those wholesome states. But we have that view, we still, we have that perspective in a way that Clinging, clinging to anything will create suffering, and so even though there is clinging to those wholesome states, you know, it's not. There's a a big mistake that we can make in practice, is to let go of clinging to wholesome states too soon, or let go of, of. we can, we can sometimes recognize, wow, you know, I really love to practice, I really want to practice. And we can see we have an identity as a meditator, we, you know, we, we're proud of ourselves, you know, we've, we've got all this stuff going. And yet, is it helpful to say, oh, I guess I should stop meditating? I guess I should not go. I should never go to meditation retreat again. I should never try to meditate because I see that there's this clinging to meditation. Well, if there's a lot of defilements operating in the mind, you know, a lot of greed, aversion, delusion, a lot of anger, a lot of reactive uh, defilements, it's helpful to hold on to that raft. You don't try to let go of the raft while you're crossing the river. And so there may be some kind of clinging to those wholesome states. And that is wholesome karma. When we start to recognize the suffering of the holding to those states, when we really when we start to know it, not in our mind saying, oh, I'm clinging, I shouldn't be doing that, but really start to know there's, you know, there's investigation arising and, you know, the mind really being hooked to needing to know and feeling the pain of needing to know. That's the point, to start investigating that clinging, So I uh, sometimes say in this kind of exploration, let suffering be your guide. We may be clinging at some level to wholesome states. And yet, the suffering we are overcoming by it helping us to let go of reactivity. It's like that's way more uh, apparent, the, the releasing from that suffering is way more apparent. When that kind of wit, that really reactive mind has settled way down, then the mind gets more attuned to the the dukkha of the clinging to the wholesome. And then we can look at that. Want to add anything?
1: Just add... Um I was thinking about the the path sometimes is broken into uh, um, sila, samadhi, panya. So sila being the ethical component, samadhi, the meditative, and panya, the insights. And what Andre was just pointing to in terms of the clinging further down the road, in some ways we don't get to choose whether or not we're clinging to things and that's, that's an insight i mean that in a way we're putting the conditions in so that moments of non-clinging can arise and we, and we have that insight oh this is clinging this is non-clinging and what we can do at, at other points in the practice is so the whole category of ethical behavior of acting in ways that doesn't bring up remorse is we can actually actively take on the five precepts for example and that's something that we feel oh i can i can do that so that's something that can be done i can refrain from harming i can refrain from basic activity that that does cause harm when we get to the level of insights that's not something we get to do the conditions have to be there so we have to put in that work and then and the non-clinging component is the fruit of of practice, and so the comma that ends, you know th- what's the phrase the,
0: the comma that ends comma that ends
1: comma. I think there are moments where we do get to taste that of a moment of non clinging, right? A moment of checking the attitude in the mind when there isn't grasping or clinging, and we see that mind that is really just wholesome, allowing, non judging. We could say as a glimpse into that kind of karma that doesn't lead onward, doesn't create more karmic consequences, and yet those are just the conditions, you know, that, that are aligning, aligned in that moment. And so there's a whole kind of progression of how the path unfolds. And so
0: we have maybe maybe we can do your your okay. your last one and then um, we have a couple minutes. How are you in the kitchen? We have a couple minutes before. Five okay, we'll answer one more
1: okay if um if we don't own the mind and can't control it, how can we read hm. i e why doesn't it just continue to free float and notice whatever it's drawn to. So if we don't own the mind and can't control it, how can we read? Do you want
0: me to start? Yeah. Okay. I was thinking this actually is very similar in a way to the question around choice. Um, I don't quite remember what the question was, but uh, just talking about how choice arises in the mind. Um, there is the factor of choice. Um, there is that, uh, the, I think, you know, the attention is a factor of mind that is amenable to choice. That choice is conditioned. And so there's many things that come together that, you know, conditions come together. Um, You know, in this situation here, we talk, we mention Saira Utejaniya, we mention his teachings, we say he's got some books, um, we encourage uh, an interest in his teachings. All these come together, all these factors come together without necessarily there having to be an I that makes the choice. For there to be an interest arising in the mind to have the attention directed towards reading, so this is almost kind of a question of you know how 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 does you know how does any um activity happen consciously if there's no me here <laughs> that's kind of this kind of question you know um. If there's no me, how do I do anything um, It's an unfolding flow of causes and conditions, and one of the causes there's 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 conditions from the past that you know, like I was just saying around reading you know there's conditions from the past of us having spoken about this, the books being published, you know, lots of conditions came together for those books to be there and are talking about it, maybe sparks the level of interest in the mind for you to read. Um, so the mind kind of is oriented there, it's it's oriented from these conditions from the past. And then in the moment, there is this arising of this, uh, in the present moment, there is this arising of intention and action that agency there is an agency in the mind and this is a big place around you know a big place that we identify with if there is a choice i must have made it if i am reading if there is a reading happening there must be an i who chose to do that when we actually start to observe and all i can do really here what what i can do here's point you to your experience um start to look at how choices unfold in your experience how does it happen that you get up from your meditation spot one scenario could be something like you know you sitting you've been sitting for a while and um there's an experience of pl- pressure in the bladder you've been sitting for a while you had coffee for breakfast maybe two cups of coffee for breakfast. So you've been sitting for a while. There's pressure in the bladder. That pressure is uncomfortable. The mind-body knows what that's about, recognizes that um, I need to pee. (laughs) And the, the choice gets made to stand up and go to the toilet. We attribute an I in there. Like, that whole process can unfold, that that the cause and effect chain unfolds. The experience in the body conditions a wish in the mind. The wish in the mind conditions an intention to move. That intention to move conditions the movement in the body you can watch this unfold and and kind of like be amazed sitting there who's doing this anyway you know without that sense of i or me or mine doing it so choice can be made choice is made not necess- not not an i doing it and an interesting piece of this whole puzzle a funny piece of this whole puzzle is that the sense of self Arising is a condition in the mind that can influence choice. So a sense of I arises in the mind and wants to look good or think about something or do something. And bec- those conditions, that that sense of self arising is a set of conditions in the mind and that set of conditions can influence choice. And so it feels like I made the choice, but the arising of the sense of self is itself just a process. <laughs> it's just a process arising in the mind. So that's a that's a that's a kind of a whole not self question. But um, mm, we should probably stop. Do you want to? Okay. Yeah, we should probably stop. We have a a, a couple other questions. And um, I think we'll probably address those in morning reflections or maybe at another talk. So let's sit for just a moment and let the words go. No need to hold on to the words yourself. No need to try to hold on to the words. Just noticing what's here.